Welcome, everybody. Uh, as you probably know, I'm Rita McGrath, and this is our Friday Fireside Chat. Uh, my guest this week is Jonathan Brill, the author of this terrific new book called Rogue Waves, which for those of you who know me will know that I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, the session is being recorded, so don't say anything you don't want your mother-in-law to be able to report later at a family cocktail party. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll, um, we'll take comments in the chat, um, so we'll try to keep an eye on those. If we don't get to them live, we'll try to respond to you um, after the session. So, Jonathan, welcome. It is a pleasure thank to you. be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with one of my heroes. So. Oh, thank you. It's going to be a love fest, I think, right? <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, among other things, at one point was the global futurist and research director at the Hewlett Packard Corporation, but you've also started businesses and you've worked for other companies. And now I gather you're doing um, some consulting. So, maybe just kick off by telling us a little bit about how you got to the point of writing, writing this book. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd spent 25 years running product innovation firms and, and like you said, starting up a couple of things, um, a manufacturing company, a software company. And uh, HP reached out to me a number of years ago and said, hey, we need someone who's you know, worked in a range of industries who can help us think about uh, what our future looks like you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, because we're reacting to the quarter. We need to have a, some kind of capacity to, to look longer term. Um, and so we built out that organ within, uh, within the company. And in the process of doing that, I realized there are so many things that are obvious once you know them uh, that aren't obvious until you're told. Um, and that we can know so much more about the future than we imagine. You know, as long as we have some kind of a process to to look at it, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all kind of everything we experience is, is something of an imagination, right? It's it's we're, we're hallucinating. We're, we're putting our assessments on on almost everything. And unless we put it down and we have a process, you know, we're likely to think the future is going to be what we've experienced before, not what's likely to happen next. You know, COVID being the the ultimate example of this. You know, you take a look at, at DOD assessments, you take a look at, at Marsh McLennan's assessments, you take a look at uh, our assessments within HP. You know, this was a radically dynamic risk, right? The issue wasn't the 100-year pandemics uh hadn't happened in a hundred years. It's that they were happening more frequently and we were getting better at stop at containing them. Mm -hmm. And that was the real takeaway, right? Is, is like, if you have a process for looking at this and everybody else, if your competitors think that, you know, this is a one in a hundred chance, but it's actually a one in 10 or a one in 20 chance, you can position yourself to take advantage. You can figure out where you need to prioritize your resilience activities uh, and, and, flip your kayak faster if you get hit or when everybody else capsizes when the rays. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the phrase rogue waves, I, I really yeah. love the way that you yeah. talk about that. And I'm using my photo op opportunity. <laughs> Thank um, you so much. And what I think is so interesting about it is, you know, any one thing we can as human beings kind of parse, like, you know, the risk that I'll cross the street and get hit by a truck, you know, it's a very specific right. kind of thing. And I can right. employ measures to not have that happen to me. <laughs> like I look right. up right. Like, and look, look, look look right. But right. Um, what I think makes the rogue wave concept so interesting is that these things intersect in ways that we don't 
see very well and that they're also exponential often in, you know, that they, you talk about releasing force, right? That, that there's this built up of force and then it gets released and has these unpredictable consequences. Yeah. So when you, I think within that, there are two really interesting ideas. The first is what is rogue wave? So, you know, you've heard of black swans and every time something goes wrong, you know, the CEO says it was a black swan event. We couldn't have known. But when you look deeper at it, almost always what happened was multiple individually manageable waves of change collided to become unmanageable, right? So what happened was we saw in, in, instead of independent volatility, we saw compound volatility, right? And so in a world that uh, where there's more people uh, getting richer, doing more weird things, and we're more connected, right? The probability of unlikely things happening uh, is greater, the spark, and the likelihood of those colliding is greater, kind of the spread. And that's what we saw in COVID, right? The, the real issue wasn't uh, that there was a pandemic, uh, a novel respiratory virus, that, that was important. But the way that we moved people, the way we moved goods, the way we ran our economy has changed radically over the last 15 years, especially in China. Right. Uh, we, we saw 16 high speed rail lines. We saw 400 million people uh, since 1995 moving to cities, cutting out you know, wilderness and the biome. We saw 10 times growth uh, in uh, travel out of China, tourism out of China between 2012 and 2019, making mm -hmm. moving them from an insignificant tourism spender to the largest on the planet. Just to give you a sense of the, the scale of what was happening, yeah, this like that's that's just nuts. So so like the scale of what was happening changed, you know, added added energy to the system. And so when we think about uh, our businesses today, if you believe what I'm saying that that there's more people doing more weird stuff, causing more unlikely things to happen, and that we're getting more connected, you know, what that means is that. Um, we need to stop focusing uh, on compound growth as our core strategy, mm -hmm. right? Because like if you do 6% better next year and 6% better the year before, the, the year after that, that's great. Uh, as long as the baseline is just the same. But if you've got volatility where you're doing 100% better, 100% worse, that compound growth is irrelevant. Right, right. right? The question is... It's also linear. What? I mean, it's linear. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, mean, I love, I love it when my MBA is just to give me these spreadsheets, right? And so yeah. year two growth was year one growth times ten. Yeah. You know, percent. right. Year three growth was year two growth. Times. <laughs> right. Right. Well, <laughs> in, in in five years, yeah, and in five years the world will be the same. Like, and it's it's like I can tell you we did something like fifteen million dollars of research uh, at HP mm -hmm. to really look at. Oh, how is the world going to be different between uh, 2020 and 2030? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's all of these individually manageable things, right? The, the inversion of populations and in, in the 20 largest economies, right? The, mm -hmm. the populations are getting older. What does that mean? Um, you know, Rita, I'm, I'm guessing you, uh, you probably buy less houses, you go out to party less, and, and, and you're probably buying less education than when you were in your 20s and 30s. Probably. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it like you're buying nicer things, I'm guessing. But but the point is that that radically changes uh, structural economic growth. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
and it, when you start adding artificial intelligence, when you start adding the, the geopolitical tensions uh, that are happening around the world, you know, you saw completely different reporting today uh, in China versus in uh, the New York Times about, um, you know, about the Biden G call. Mm -hmm. Right. G is saying, oh, it's great. We're going to work together. And Biden's like, well, actually, there are some I, I got that backwards. You know, uh, Biden says we need to work together on climate and all these things. And G is basically saying we're a rising power. Um, that means that you need to treat us as a peer. And this mm -hmm. isn't actually an education uh, on how to be a peer. This is a negotiation about who, you know, who sucks up what so that we can all have a better future. Mm -hmm. It's a very different world than the world 10 or 15 years ago. And yet mm -hmm. uh, in our education and our training and our thought processes and our minds and our hallucinations, we think it's going to be the same and it's just not. And so you have to look at this compound volatility and what happens if maybe some parts of the future move slower than you expect. And what happens if some parts of the future move faster, right? Like we all have done these strategy reports. We've all seen these strategy reports where it's like in the, in, in, in three years, it'll be like this. Mm -hmm. And you look back at that same deck three years later and you realize no one updated it. Right. <laughs> right. No one checked to see if their assumptions were tracking. Um, yeah, and right. so, you know, it's, it's, it's really about having those, the issue is really about having those processes in your organization mm -hmm. so that you can uh, get better at looking at the, at the range of possible futures, uh, like, like you say, seeing around corners, but also that you can get an earlier warning if your assessments are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of ground it a little bit in, in the, the how this works in real life, could you walk us through a little case study of what you did at HP? Because, you know, remarkable. I mean, the company got hit with all these yeah. rogue waves and yeah. yet came out of it not only okay, yeah. but actually better yeah. than, than rivals like Xerox. So maybe just yeah. that case study. I think that would be fascinating. So, so apparently you're an HBR reader as well. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a wonderful article that we wrote um or that i wrote a couple of months ago in hbr about uh, how hp prepared for for volatility uh and, and the impact of that so it, it's kind of a perfect case study isn't it um so in in the world leading up to covid uh a couple of things were happening. One, we had uh, we were giving away a lot of dividend, right? So we had really high quarterly performance requirements. Uh, two, Carl uh, Icahn and Xerox had teamed up and gotten the money uh, to try and and do a leveraged buyout, a forced buyout of HP. Um, and then COVID hit, and something really interesting happened, which is the earnings per share of Xerox dropped 69% by gap, 60% by their own accounting. And HP has effectively stayed stable. HP saw uh, growth in a number of its markets. Um, and this was in a world where the printing industry, which is its core revenue driver, its core margin driver, uh, dropped 6.4% over 2020. Mm -hmm. um, so radically, radically, I'm sorry, 9.4% over 2020. So a radically different, kind of world. And so what did we do? Um, we did a couple of things. One, we built a what we called the future unit within the organization, which was a small group of people with social, economic, technological uh, analysis skills. Uh, 
Uh, and we then worked with across the organization to find the people who were responsible for longer term planning within the company, maybe three year, maybe five year, maybe longer, and started to connect them. And, and we did two things. One is we asked them for their advice, their input about what they thought the future was going to be. And then we acted as a research core and, and kind of the intelligence function within the firm uh, to, to analyze that, uh, share it, make sure that it was getting distributed. Uh, and every year we would package that up and we would uh, share it with the entire C-suite. So that, uh, and there's something really interesting that happens there, uh, which is that uh, when you share something with all of the executives, all of, who have, all of whom have different objectives, um, you know, you know, anybody can tell you the joke about talking with the C-suite about, about the, comp the corporate strategy and you have 12 different strategies, you know. Um, that's true in any organization. It was true at HP. Uh, but what happens when you have this ground up communication and then you have this top down, you know, readout is that everyone has to be in alignment about what that future looks like. And so you get better coordination around what's important, what's not, you know, where do you put your workforce in the future? What are the, what are the skills requirements? Where do we need to have our locations? What's the technology stack that we need to develop? What are our major investments in the future? So one of the things we did uh, was we invested, we spent a number of years investing in a smart diagnostics capability that I can't talk too much about, um, but was really convenient in the face of COVID you know, to, to have that kind of back of pocket solution. And we looked at it not just because of COVID, but we looked at a lot of these other demographics issues and said, okay, we, we're gonna have to figure out how to do lower cost diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And COVID is gonna be a hockey stick, you know, for that technology, you know, or well, a pandemic. Well, you know it was COVID at the time. Right. A, 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 major, a, a major pandemic mm -hmm. will be, um, you know, uh, an amplifier. And so that's why we kind of had a perspective on this being a dynamic threat. Um, but we'd identify it in our SEC uh, uh, proxy disclosures for, for a number of years as a threat. Unlike 2020 is kind of time zero. How far ahead yeah. were you building that? We, we look, we were looking out about 10 years, um, uh, you know, really to 2030 typically. Um, and the reason is that sometimes, you know, the future happens faster than you think, you know, so digital transformation was supposed to take five years, it turns out that it took five weeks. <laughs> Some companies, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, and so that that was that was, uh, that's why you look out farther, it's not necessarily because, you know, your discounted cash flow makes any sense 10 years out, it's because you, you want to make sure that if something you know, something out there happens faster um, that you've got, you've got a good, you've got enough response window. So what, so just walk us through sort of, you have these three cataclysmic events, right? You've got a hostile acquisition, takeover attempt, right. you've got a looming global pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got all these like big things. How do you first hear about them? And then how do you mobilize? Because I think that's really interesting. I mean, right. you know, you, as you point out in the book, a lot of times you talk to companies and they're like, oh yeah, we knew that. And like, yeah, so if you knew it, <laughs> why well, did you right, do right. about it? Right? Hey, yeah, 
Thank, thanks. Good work, Xerox. Um, <laughs> yeah, like Polaroid, the, the, the founder CEO of Polaroid was actually the first person to identify uh, digital imaging as as a real technology opportunity in the very late 1960s uh, for satellites and, and some recently declassified material. So so the like like you're saying, like the fact that the CEO knows that this is a threat and an opportunity doesn't mean that they're acting uh, against it. And that's always the challenge is, you know, is your board willing to, you know, lose some short term performance, you know, for long term viability and, you know, in in a highly cap, you know, in, in a high in a um, highly performance driven company, that's always kind of the, the great challenge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that when, you know, when we looked at, you know, things like COVID, things like pandemics, I think it's important to realize that you can't, um, you can't prepare for every rogue wave. You know, what you need to do is look at your finances, look at your operations, look at changes to your external environment, look at strategic issues like demand forecasting and say, okay, well, what what combinations of these things going wrong uh, would impact us? Or more importantly, how do you flip that and turn it into an innovation opportunity? What combination of those things going wrong for our customers mm-hmm. would impact them, mm-hmm. right? Because all of a sudden, if you start thinking that way, you start communicating that way, uh, what happens is you stop talking to senior managers about procurement and you start very quickly talking to the CEO and the price doesn't matter because you're now talking about board level mm-hmm. conversations mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, what's the cost of stables? Yeah, right. Exactly. So, so I, I yeah, find that so, it's such a fascinating thing because so often the people that really do see something important is brewing have no no pathway to get that towards strategic decisions at the level of the company are being made and and those are often the people who are like i've been telling them that for years <laughs> you know? and you're like well why wasn't anybody paying attention it's really an interesting topic so you talk about um four categories of risk uh financial operational external and strategic and i thought that was interesting because when i first read that chart in your book, the thing that it got me thinking about was these are all the things that keep companies anchored on today. You know, so yep. what's my financial model? What are my current operating? What what are my right. metrics? What are my right. promises to external stakeholders? Um, and yet you treat it in a slightly different way. You 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 couch them in terms of what are all the risks to those things. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things I found most interesting was that I instantly gravitated towards these are all anchors for today. <laughs> and you're treating them as actually no, these are things you should look at to say what could go desperately wrong with any one of these things. Right, like you know, th- this is the thing is is. You know, I, I, I didn't call myself a futurist. I, I got my, I, I got hired at HP and all of a sudden I discovered that was my job title. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the thing is you can't, you know, the, there are, there are two, two things about the future, right? You can know, uh, A, you can't know what future will happen, but you can know what futures are plausible. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think the difference, right? Um, what, what, which features are most likely? Uh, in which futures are plausible because, you know, like, I don't know, I, I guess rocket ships and flying cars are, are plausible futures for Jeff Bezos and, and Larry Page, but these are also people who, you know, take the rocket ship 
out for a spin on the retirement party, right? Like that's not likely a plausible future for all of us in the next 10 years based on kind of the, you know, energy demands of, of, of devices like that. So, so my point is there are things that are realistic. There are things that aren't. And I think that we need to get much more granular about the things, uh, the things that are realistic and what we would do in response, right? When you take a look at a company like, uh, like Amazon, you know, Amazon didn't have a COVID playbook. They didn't have a COVID plan. They got, they got hit like everybody else. And so my question to you about what's, what's different about them is if I gave you all of the money, I gave you the best people, the best infrastructure. I even gave you a board that was going to let you do whatever the heck you wanted. <laughs> Could you absorb 10 years of growth in 90 days? Could you hire up a workforce the size of the Ford Motor Company Corporation because the opportunity appeared in front of you like in a quarter? Could you well, do that? Well, and, I think and, one of the things that's super interesting to me about Amazon and companies like it is yeah. they had already built the structures to be able to do that. Now, I'm not saying yeah. this happened with no stress. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Oh, no, people, people, weren't people uh, yeah, weren't sleeping. Yeah, but um, there's, a, there's a concept that I think is very important to this conversation about the future, and it has to do with what my friend Michael Sikorsky calls the permissionless organization. Mm -hmm. where you've got, you know, you've got a very clear, broad strategy. And, right. and you know, at Amazon, they have, what, 13 or 14, like, there's, there's a book with the rules. And you don't violate They take them, them seriously. Oh, yeah. it's, it's the one organization I've ever seen that takes their mission seriously. Oh, and they've, I mean, you know, I mean, to the like, senior guys, like they, they, they yeah. know them, like they can, they yeah. can rattle them off, like that, that, that. Oh, yeah. I was talking to someone who's. Oh, and it's, and it's central to decision making at every level. Yeah. But one of the things I thought was fascinating was one of their senior people and I were on a panel together and I said to him, well, you know, what would you do in the case of somebody who made a decision? You know, so this is this permissionless theme. I was right. saying, what would you do to somebody who made a decision that was contrary to what? you thought the major objectives were. And he said something very interesting. He said, you know, if you framed it in terms of the rules and why you made the trade-offs that you did, that would probably be okay. If it wasn't framed in those terms, that would be a cause for some criticism. And he said, he used the example of, let's say we double, we overpaid for a merger target um, in a certain right. quarter where we might've gotten a better price if we waited quarters, just as an example. Right. He said, if you if you didn't have a justification for it in terms of the rules at Amazon, that would be pretty bad. But if you said, look, we have a rule around, you know, do the right thing for the customer. We have a rule around, you know, right. do, do things fast. We have a rule around these things. And that overrode our rule about frugality. And I thought right. to be able to have a senior executive just randomly lay out the clarity of that trade-off sequence, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and and one of the things that I think is really important about standard operating procedures is that you have clarification about that there's clarity that the purpose of those is so that people know when to not use them, mm -hmm. so that people know when to ignore them, mm -hmm. right? Like people, and the issue there is people need to know why they're there, mm -hmm. right? And we we've been looking at you know things like you know, uh, learning and development training. We've been dropping budgets for learning and development training in the U.S., I think, since the early 80s, mm -hmm. right? People people are, you know, learning these silver bullet lessons about, like, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to learn how to lead, uh, in, you know, six hours at, at a workshop. <laughs> like this is crazy. Oh, I know. The right. Thing, and, other, and, a couple of things just on education yeah. that I think are really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and then there has been a question in the chat about how AI influences all that. So think about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's two things. First of all, we've, we've, trimmed our responsibility for educating our people we've we're sort of palming that off on maybe some other company will do it or maybe the world right. will do it. Yeah. We're, not doing it. we're not taking on that cost but the second interesting thing that people aren't talking about is there used to be a lot of trainer jobs you know so mm -hmm. start off running a, a region and then maybe you run a state and then maybe you right. run like a small country right. and then, you know and, right. and you know you sort of zigzagged around the company so by the time you got to be a more senior person you had a lot of experience of different environments and different right. kind of decision making and so forth and you know as organizations have become flatter and more distributed those right. um trainer jobs have gone away Right. And so what I'm finding is people are being asked to step from like this level to this level right. without right. being groomed to do yeah. that. Yeah. And the other thing that goes with that, and this I'll be interested in your perspective on this, the other thing that goes with that then is you tend to find those people getting those big promotions, they're operators. You know, they're yeah. excellent at execution. They're nose to the grindstone. Hurricane hit Louisiana. We move, you know, 47,000 right. trucks yeah. in position to yeah. get it all right. Those kind of people with fabulous right. skill set. Nothing wrong with it. Right. But that's right. not gonna that's not gonna get you looking at these guys. <laughs> you know? It's, and I think I think it's just such an interesting kind of set of evolutionary mechanisms in organizations today. And I think, you know, what what's fascinating actually is the supply chain people tend to be pretty good at risk management. It's actually a reframing of a lot of those skill sets. You know, what I, I come from an innovation background. I spent, you know, helped helped uh, develop 350 products that got to market. Um, and I really knew nothing about risk mitigation or enterprise risk management. And as I dug into the book, I dug into this research. I'm, the thing I realized when you were talking about the four foes, finance, operations, external changes, and strategy, right? These are the primary risk buckets for organizations. But they're also, and this, is, this was the big insight for me, uh, these people who run around thinking about what coming up with new horror movies in their heads all day, like they've got the best tools for figuring out where the next opportunity for innovation is. That was that was like the the the, the brain exploding insight for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that operators, you know, especially really good global supply chain operators, are incapable of no. this kind of thinking. I, th I think it's a mindset flip, and and the skills are actually there. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It's just they're so used to being focused on this, right? That they don't yeah. understand there's this whole other. Yeah, set of things they might be paying well, attention to. And, and what what I think about there is is like we we've taught our organizations, and you know you you've you've seen the whole thing, right? From uh, we're we're gonna do um, we're all gonna be like like Toyota, and then we're all gonna re-engineer our firms, and then we're all gonna Six Sigma, and and we're gonna modularize our company so that we can quantify it, and and. That's all good. It's created incredible operational resilience. It's created efficiency. It's cut fat, like lots of things. But it's also designed organizations to focus in on themselves. Mm -hmm. 
right? And what I'm saying is that worked since 1980 or the, the late 1970s as we saw the world become more and more and more harmonized in terms of regulation, in terms of trade, in terms of, of, of global growth, global production, right? This all became easier. And so that stuff all made sense. But in a world where, do you believe the next decade is going to be less volatile than the last one? Like none of the indicators suggest it. So in a world that's getting more volatile, do those same assumptions hold that the best strategy is to look inside our firm as opposed to look outside mm -hmm. and say, okay, how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we surf the wave? How do we, how do we become more resilient? How do we flip our kayak faster if we, you know, if we miss the, 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 the wave? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So come back to this question of AI, big data. You know, I get asked this all the time. Well, aren't the machines going to be so smart? They'll just kind of tell us what to do. And uh, I'd be interested in your perspective and happy to share mine as well. Yeah. Um, yes and no. I mean, I remember in 2010, I went to Barcelona and it was the first time I traveled internationally with an iPhone and it was stunning. I never got lost. The AI told me what to do. It was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and what we forget is that, you know, AI is just a term for a range of statistical computing techniques. Mm -hmm. Like these are things that if you had enough time, you could do in Excel, mm -hmm. right? It's just that a computer does a lot of it for it for you. Um, and uh, they're really good in situations where the future is likely to mimic the past, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or new characteristics are unlikely to enter the, the system, right? When you start, you know, throwing wrenches in the works, all of a sudden AI doesn't right. work, right? Right. Well, and I so, you know, AI is only as good as the data set it's trained on, right? And, it's, you know, by definition, those are lagging indicators. They're data yeah. about the past and they're not going to give you those leading indicators about the future. And, and I think, I think two things, one that can be true. Um, the second is that, uh, AI is a, when we think about the future, let, let me take four steps back. Mm -hmm. Why do companies have such a hard time thinking about the future? A good question. This is the first time, this is the first time in human history, right? Maybe since World War II, uh, but certainly since the, the late 1980s, where we've had the tools, we've had the surveillance tools, we've had the, the, the data tools, we've had the statistical tools, we've had the scientific method to really start to project what happens next. Now, if you take a look at something like uh, climate modeling, right? Like, I don't know, can you really model exactly what things are gonna look like in 2100 and is 2032 at midnight really the day that like everything goes bad? I don't know that you can know that, but this is the first time in human history where we can say with great confidence that climate change is highly likely to happen. Mm -hmm here are the impacts. We don't know exactly when, but we know within a range of a number of years what this could look like. This is the first time that we've been able to do that. So I think AI plays a huge role in decision-making. 
But I think we need to learn how to deal with uncertainty better in organizations, right? We've learned how to create organizations that deal uncertainty, right? We chunk things down, chunk organizations down, chunk budgets down, chunk KPIs down to the point where they're individually measurable. Mm -hmm. That's hugely important, but it's totally irrelevant when the company gets the shock. Right. Right? And so the question is, do you have the ability to, independent of AI or not AI, do you have the ability to think about these problems, uh, to think about change and how to cut off the, um, uh, uncouple the threats from the opportunities? Mm-hmm. You know, and what, what small decisions can you make to do that? And those, those can be AI problems. Uh, we were talking about Amazon and they put this infrastructure in place before. I mean, you know, Amazon, weirdly is kind of the company's kind of a giant video game right it's a it's a giant you know statistical tool where you know they you they push and pull levers they they hire more economists i believe than any organization phd level economists i believe than any organization outside of the fed right there and there's there were a couple of years when they were the number one employer of columbia mbas Really? Mm-hmm. I, I believe it. I think they might be the number one employer of all MBAs right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and, and that's, I think that's my point was, you know, what were they, why were they able to respond? You know, at that scale, they had to use software to respond. And at that scale, they had to use PhD level economists to respond, but they had a systems model of how their organization worked, you know, something like the way AI works. I don't know the depths of it. There's certainly AI spices in there. Um, and so they knew exactly how hard they could push and pull the levers without the system breaking. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to be doing in your organization, right? Like thinking about the future isn't just about like figuring out what's next. It's about, you know, how do you maximize your operational agility? And you don't need AI to do that. I think a lot of, for, for smaller companies, for Amazon, you know, for Google, for Ford Motor Company, you know, you do. Um, but for smaller companies, you know, that's that's a serious nice to have. I think you can get by with the list of the four foes and I break down the, the major, you know, places where you see organizational risk in companies in the first chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, even just like looking at that and looking at these 10 trends that we identified that, that are the most likely to cause they're the trackable trends that are the most likely to cause massive change over the next decade. If you just kind of, you know, play 52 pickup with those, with those things and say, okay, what happens to my supply chain and what happens to my demand forecasting? If there's a, you know, if there are riots in Seattle um, and there's a recession, or and there's a demographic shift right like if you start looking at those things that way and just work through those thought problems i mean you can do almost as much in a small to medium-sized organization as, as those massive tools do for large organizations without any of the technology mm-hmm. interesting so bogdan wants to know um permissionless strategies um so i'll just take a second on that so yeah. basically this is a, a way of creating a strong enough uh, structural cultural context framework 
so that you don't need committees, you don't need approvals, you don't need controls. And probably the best resource on that is there, Michael Sikorsky, who's um, one of my colleagues, wrote a great article in Fast Company. If you just look up Michael Sikorsky and yeah. Fast Company, you'll find his article. But the other great resource on this is Patty McCord's um, book, Powerful, in which she talks about what they tried to create at Netflix was this culture of freedom and responsibility so that people at the right level could make very big decisions, um, you know, but with a lot of confidence, they were congruent with the strategy, that they were consistent with what was going on. So those are some great uh, resources to look at. So um, uh, what, Jonathan, um, I'd love to talk to you about something that has driven me crazy literally for two decades. And it's this concept of abductive reasoning, uh -huh. which does not exist in the academy. Like, like you, you can go through 50 years of administrative science quarterly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and the concept of abductive reasoning gets completely poo-pooed. And yet when you look at real world problem solving or, or thinking about these uncertain areas or we haven't figured this out yet it's yeah. essential it's essential yeah. and i believe it was pierce who like in his day he was ridiculed charles, <laughs> charles sanders pierce yeah that's right and uh, so i'd love you to expand maybe on what that looks like because it's a bit of short bones yeah. and a bit of business all tied in together okay. so so I, I, all right everybody this is your broccoli moment right, um, right. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk epistemology now um so so uh epistemology is the study of how we know what we know and there are four major techniques uh for doing that right there's deductive reasoning which is kind of what a lawyer does where they they say you know we're gonna we're gonna use deductive logic to to make an argument you know we, we assume all the facts are true and we assume we know all the facts uh and given these things here's what had to have happened uh turns out that we rarely know all of the facts and all of the facts are rarely true. Um, so works in software doesn't work so well in the real world. Um, the second way of looking at the world is inductive reasoning. And this is kind of how scientists tend to look at the world. They uh, uh, look at all of the available information and they say, hey, given this, you know, here are the likely things that could be. Uh, again, toss in a little bit of Bayesian modeling because we were talking about AI before, before we talk about abductive reasoning. Over the last uh, 30, 40 years, starting with a guy named Judea Pearl, there's this idea in statistics that, you know, if you remember your statistics class, they say correlation doesn't equal causation. Well, correlation doesn't always equal causation. If you can put some kind of a systems model that says this thing always has to go this way, and this thing always has to go this way, and this thing can go this way or this way in some cases, and then you have your little statistical models in the middle, right? All of a sudden, you can actually uh, infer from statistics what is. And this is how search engines work. This yeah, is how well, a lot of artificial intelligence be, works. A great example that would be all the studies that, that that traced the relationship between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer. You know, and it took decades before people believed what those studies were doing. Right. And, and that was a lot of that was because this idea of Bayesian modeling wasn't available yet. That's why it took so long. You had to actually have the data to work backwards. But with this new type of technology, you can start to make inferences moving forwards. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what's really interesting. That's why self-driving cars are starting to, to work. And all of these things, all of this AI, that's, that's what it's about is this deep, this initial thing. But you were talking about abductive thinking. And so that's the fourth major strategy. Induct, you have deductive, inductive, Bayesian models, uh, which I really treat in chapter three of the book or chapter four of the book. And I kind of hide it in the stuff about epistemology because it's a whole subject. Uh, and then we talk about abductive reasoning. Uh, and abductive reasoning is the idea that, you know, you look at the information in front of you and you say, okay, if some pieces of this information were untrue, how would my opinion change? Or if a new fact came to light, how would my opinion change? So for scientifically trained people out there, this is called conjecture. Um, and, and it's a really powerful tool. If you read Sherlock Holmes mysteries, right? This is a lot of what he does. He goes down, he, he goes through the lot. Arthur Conan Doyle hides a lot of this with, with, you know, misdirection and, and, you know, and, 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 and so forth. But if you, if you just literally outline the stories, what he does is he goes through a deductive checklist, right? Like, what do I know about what had to be true? He goes through an inductive checklist based on that information. What do I think is most likely to be true? And what information, if it changed or came to light, and this is always the aha moment, right? Uh, he goes and double checks a thing and doesn't tell you until the last sentence of the story um, would change my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's really the important question. What's the counterfactual? What, what is the thing I cannot prove that must be true? Interesting. The curious case of the dog in the night. Well, the dog did nothing in the night. That's what's yeah, curious. It, and <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, I think I, I think I talk about that in the book. And that mm -hmm. you do. I do. It. Yeah. Silver bla silver blaze. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I found also really interesting about the book was um, I think on page one seventy four this this um, war game this war game and the yeah. chapter is entitled who sank my battleship yes. <laughs> it takes you to the brink of this guy who's like the ultimate cosmic <laughs> power and yet right. you know, some you know whippersnapper with no resources just sank yeah. all the ships so yeah. talk a little bit yeah. about it yeah so so this has been covered relatively extensively within the defense establishment um and and i think malcolm gladwell at one point well uh, a lot wrote, of parallels wrote, to our current situation in afghanistan right uh, well, a, a tremendous amount of parallels. I think what one of the things we don't recognize, um, you know, and I'm not defending Donald Rumsfeld, um, but one of the things we don't recognize is before most of these activities, he did do an assessment like we talk about in Who Sank My Battleship, and he identified what the risks were and what the threats were. And unfortunately, those came true <laughs> uh, in Iraq. They came true in Afghanistan. Um, uh, and and uh, so what, what's the idea? The idea is uh, if you look at your current situation and you, you kind of build a systems model, right? Like what do we know about how the world works, uh, the, world, the ecosystem around us works? And what if uh, different aspects of that were, you know, disrupted? What, what would happen? What would be the downstream impact on us? And we go through a really detailed uh, way to think about the problem, probably more 
it's like it's like a seven thousand word piece so it's probably more detailed than we want to get into here but we we talk very specifically about the questions you want to ask how you want to set up conversations so that you really figure out you really stress test situations before you get into them and when we talk about who sank my battle shop and 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 i, I guess i i kind of like built up the tension here um uh, you know, we talk about a war game that was uh, called MCO2, I believe, uh, that was held in the lead up to um, uh, the war in Iraq, where we said, okay, well, what would happen if the most powerful naval force in human history, you know, went up against, uh, you know, the, 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 the Iranian or, or the Iraqi uh, Navy, you know, which are basically a bunch of small power boats uh, and, and a whole bunch of, you know, uh, Soviet era missiles. Um, and the answer should be nothing. And if they operated in the way that we wanted them to, it would be nothing. Uh, but what happened in the war game, and this was fascinating, is a uh, retired Marine general, I believe. Um, he came in and he said, okay, well, what do I know about the situation? I know that we're in peacetime. So uh, the Navy, the US Navy, can't so this guy was the red cell he was the bad guy in the simulation uh he he says okay well the navy is we're in peacetime so the navy can't actually push into trade lanes and they can't actually push into civil airspace and have fighter planes flying around and and surveillance equipments um and they're gonna kind of go low and slow because they're big and and they're gonna hit with brute force so if I hit them before they're able to get into their attack space and when they're pushed up on the backside, you know, against all of the civil activity, they're not going to know what to do. And they've got this incredible thing called the Aegis, uh, the, the Aegis Cruiser, the Aegis system, which was this incredible uh, surveillance command and control system. Um, that allowed the entire awareness of the entire battlefield and, and, and so on and so forth and allowed the ships to talk to each other and, and coordinate attacks. And um, he's like, all I need to do is push people up against that back wall and then overwhelm that system. And they're because of their technology advantage and because of the law, they can't respond. And so he goes in, he takes a whole bunch of speedboats, uh, puts like fertilizer or whatever on the back of the speedboats. He goes and he blows up these ships in about 15 minutes uh, and, and decimates the Navy. And the, the question coming out of this activity was, well, you weren't supposed to do that. We could have defended <laughs> against you, you know, if we knew that was coming. <laughs> I love that. That's and his entire point was you didn't know it was coming. That's how that's how this works. Um well and it's and the theory it's of imperial warfare, you know, from the dawn of time. You you take a larger, better equipped enemy and use their own strengths against them. Absolutely. I mean, you take a look at Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? Mm -hmm. Like he the guy's really innovative. I'm not denying that but what did he do he said okay boeing lockheed you know these big guys they are tied to government spending mm -hmm. they have huge uh union labor force they can't fire their phds because it's a national defense issue right so they can't operate cost effectively they can't do things that aren't you know in the immediate national interest of the defense establishment and coming out of world war i'm sorry coming out of the the cold war you know 
there was no interest for them to build new rocket systems. So they said, okay, well, like once I'm successful, they're going to come after me, but no one's going to actually compete until I'm successful. <laughs> well, that's that. So, so he, he comes in, he gets younger kids that are less expensive. He builds agile systems, you know, based on, on kind of how we did things in Silicon Valley in, in the early two thousands. Uh, and, and he goes and, you know, conveniently he had his own $50 million, uh, <laughs> unique <laughs> advantage, unique advantage. Um, but uh, and and he goes and he 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 pushes this entire cockamamie plan, um, and he gets so far that uh, you know when we he starts seeing crises in his organization, you know NASA backs him you know just to drive down the cost of space just to keep everybody else under control. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. So, so he's just, he was thinking about all of this stuff three or four steps ahead where he needed to get to, mm -hmm. to have a strategic advantage and to have a backup. Mm -hmm. It's really, well, really impressive. It's very impressive. So one of the things that has um, kind of bedeviled me for a long time is, so you talk about the phases of getting ready to do this as being ABC, you know, awareness, behavior change, and finally culture. Um, and the whole notion of you know, when do you captain, when do you coach? Um, the thing that drives me crazy when I think about, you know, in strategic inflection points and early warnings and thinking about the future, um, how do you get organizations to invest in preparation and resilience when mm -hmm. they just, you know, human nature. I mean, I look at like the plant Champlain Tower South, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there, there was like, we didn't even have like weak signals. I mean, there were signals right. standing <laughs> yeah. on the roof and screaming. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> you know? So is it just, you know, if you happen to catch the ear of the right CEO or is there, is there something more systematic we could look to? <laughs> I think that there are uh, systematic things. That's That's part of what I think uh cause the change at hp mm -hmm. um we talk about you know like there's 368 pages in the book so there's three, 368 pages of, of insight um uh, but we talk about awareness behavior change and culture change right for no one's going to change until they're aware of what the future looks like and why they need to do it right like the answer is always going to be tomorrow 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 i've got a three-year window in this company it's the next guy's plan problem right right uh, you know <laughs> uh the second issue is going to be about behavior change like even if you know that the tsunami is coming if you don't have the skills to get off the beach right it doesn't matter and we've been uh we have within our organizations probably most of the skill sets you need to look at the future there are five major skill sets we talk about in the book uh but you know, we primarily in, in are these the nudges you know, that you talk about? Uh, I, I talk about the kind of the rogue method. So, so reality mm -hmm. testing. So we talked about earlier, like inductive, deductive, abductive reasoning, uh, organized uh, observing systems, right? So, so that 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 first thing is like a thing that people in quantitative social sciences tend to learn in their undergraduates. Um, uh, we talk about observing systems, right? How do you how do you look at it, it all of these things that are going on what's what are the probabilities going happening and and how do they link together that kind of bayesian modeling we were talking about so if you're in computer science these days if you have a degree in economics and you know how to do stock flow analysis things like that you tend to have a good handle on this 
uh, generating the range of futures, right? Like, you know, you were talking about your 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 grad students and and they're bringing in their bus their business models and like, well, the the future is that next year we'll do six percent better than today. That never works. I mean, in in your book, I think, or in an HBR article, you talk about like how how many quarters in a row companies can kind of sustain their 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 performance estimates. Yeah, and it's like three for a good one. <laughs> <laughs> like like these things make. You know, yeah, the, 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 there was one that I did where I looked at every publicly traded firm like on the planet over a 10 yeah. year period and yeah. saw how many of them had delivered consistent 5% growth, you know, year yeah. on year over 10 years. Yeah. And yeah. there were 10 <laughs> out of like 7,000 firms. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like that. That's a statistical anomaly. It wasn't their fault. Um, <laughs> so so my, my point is, what's that range of possible futures? Because we never talk about that. Right. We never talk about the fact that it's far more likely that we're going to be disrupted than that we're going to be the disruptor. And what do you do then? Um, then we talk about uncoupling threats from opportunities. So this is a thing like mechanical engineers are really good at. Um, and it's why a lot of mechanical engineers find themselves in program management. Right. Is that they're really good at figuring out how, to, you know, if you if you take it, make a decision tree, say, and, you know, and up here is like the, the best possible future. You know, you have you have a Zoom year in, in the year of COVID and down here is the worst possible future. You have an AMC year in the year of COVID. Right. Like what are the decision points that you could snip off that would eliminate the downside, give you something reasonable and maximize your probability of the upside? That's a skill set, and it's not a thing that you know finance majors or 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 sales teams or you know a lot a lot of people have. Um, and then the last one's experiments. So we take a look at experimentation in firms, and I'm sure you've done this. You've done lots of innovation research, and you go in and they say, "Oh, we do lots of R and D spend. We just we we just spend a lot on on R. We do lots of experiment. We're, we're experimenters." And then you look at it, and you look at you know like a company like GM. Right. You can argue whether they're an innovative company or not. I look at their innovation spend over the last hundred years. They're an innovative company. Right. <laughs> um, but what have they done? They made a better car, better car, better car, better car, better, better car, better car, better car. And then they make an electric vehicle that goes 150,000 miles without a tune up. And their entire business model is that they sell a car every three years to you know, to a dealer who then makes their free cash flow by doing maintenance on that car and then selling another car three years later to the customer. Mm -hmm. They blow the entire thing up because you don't need to see the dealer for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't come up with another plan. They, they, they should have really been thinking about their innovation much more like an investment portfolio or, or like a drug discovery portfolio where you're thinking about, okay, well, what combination of investments, no matter which ones succeed, will get us to our benchmarks on the right time, on the right timeline. Exactly. Right. And that's a hard thing to do. And I've never once walked into an organization, done an R&D assessment and had the alignment be right mm -hmm. outside of pharma, yeah. outside of pharma. Yeah. Well, I've, um, um, one of the things I work on uh, is this portfolio model that I use that basically yeah. says, you know, you, you, you have to know what's in there. And most of the time when I first start working with a company, they have no idea. I mean, there are zombie projects in there there where the, the forecast has been pushed out, you know, year on year on year. So there's never any accountability because, oh, yeah, yeah, we moved that to next year. And then you look at them and it's been happening six years in a row and you're asking yourself, 
well, at some point, <laughs> we have to admit this thing is never going to happen. And let's stop doing it. And let's put our resources into something else. But I think just getting a line of sight into the portfolio is incredibly yeah. difficult for most firms. Well, and, and I think it ties back to a lot of the, the program management and accounting methods we've developed, right, which are really about quarterly growth and, and about reliability. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking at a new technology and a new category that requires ecosystem development, right? The things that will make you a better company 10 years from now magic or five years link, from now. Magic link. I love to general yeah. magic. I love Oh yeah. Magic. Yeah. Brilliant innovation like yeah. 20 years too early. <laughs> yeah. So these these are the guy these guys you probably haven't heard of them. They were invested in by Apple. Um the iPhone wasn't an accident. It wasn't a new idea. Uh, and, and it was really developed in the late 80s and early 1990s by a company called Magic Link, a lot of the ideas. Um, but there were a couple of problems, like no one had email yet, and you needed to get uh, three and a half G wireless technologies for, for any of this stuff to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were so far ahead of the curve that, that by the time all of this happened, like their patents were expired. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, but so you, take a look, huh. you take a look at the technology yeah you take a look at the technology in siri right the one of the first uh, apple's voice assistant came out of magic link i did not know that right. ah so that was that was general magic the firm yeah uh, it was a great uh, documentary yeah. about them a great documentary which is totally if you're like a business oh person, that 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 is a addictive um, totally yeah. totally yeah. So. Anyway, we've got just a couple of minutes. Um, okay. Flew by, but so where do people go uh, to learn more? I mean, obviously, yeah. buy the book, right? It's a good start. Uh, buy, buy the book. It's on Amazon. Do it today if you haven't already. <laughs> um, you can find out more about me speaking, advisory work. Uh, I'm publishing a disturbing amount right now. Um, uh, on jonathanbrill.com and please please follow me on linkedin uh that's where you're going to find the most up-to-date information that's great to know well jonathan brill what a pleasure to meet you first of all and our interests are very much aligned and i'd like to think about <laughs> our continuing this conversation <laughs> absolutely i'd love to anytime